0: Good morning, Chili Bible. He is risen. He is indeed. indeed. I want to uh, mention to you, if you're visiting with us, first of all, welcome. Thank you for coming. And I know you have uh, uh, a lot of different options that you could choose from, but we we thank you for coming and joining us here. Uh, This is a family, and we'd love to have you become part of it. Uh, We... uh, Uh, Also, want to make you aware uh, if you have a child who is between kindergarten and the second grade, if uh, they would like to participate in children's church this morning, uh, just uh, walk right out those doors and down the hall. uh, And children's church is going on. So if you have a child who would be uh, happier there and you would be happier with them there, uh, feel free to send them there. All right? (laughs) All right. Uh, now I'm going to do something this morning I don't normally do on Easter Sunday. Normally when this Sunday rolls around, I'll stop whatever preaching series I'm doing and make sure we find our way to one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life so that I can tell everyone who is here one more time about the cross that was followed by the empty tomb, about payment for sin and redemption and deliverance to new life. Now what's different this year is this, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to go to the Gospels, because it just so happens that where we are in Exodus lines up perfectly with Easter. Easter uh, is, uh, is the fulfillment of a great deal of Scripture that predicts all through the Old Testament the coming of the Messiah, and Exodus is the Old Testament story of redemption of a God who came and who delivered from slavery and who set free to a new life and led his people to a new promised land. Amen? So where we are today is learning about God's redemption and how he saves his people from, through the death of the firstborn and the blood of the Lamb. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, Uh, Right back there by those back doors, there's a stack of them, and you can grab one, and if you like it, take it home with you uh, as our gift, and um, we would love to give that to you. So uh, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. So uh, I'm going to read a few verses, and then we'll talk together. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all of the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house, where there was not someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now this is a scene, if you can imagine it, out of a late night horror movie. Everything is quiet, and nothing is stirring. Not a dog barks, but along these quiet streets, in the darkness, a visitor walks unseen. The death angel is going from house to house, and he is coming for many on this night. And he comes up to a door, and he finds it already marked with blood, and he passes by. And further away, he finds another house with no bloodstains on the door and none on the lintels above. And in each of them, in each of those unmarked houses, from the king's palace down to the the criminal in the lowest dungeon even the barns and the paddocks and the pastures, the death angel strikes, and blood is spilled. And what had been a dark, silent night is all of a sudden pierced by a nationwide wail of anguish. As the firstborn is struck down, the firstborn sons, Throughout all the people of Egypt are all struck dead in an instant. Every single one. To quote the scripture here in verse 30, there was not a house where someone was not dead. Every firstborn male child except those who lived in houses marked with blood, the blood of the lamb died. And suddenly, the very thing that Moses had been pleading with and begging and exhorting Pharaoh to, Pharaoh gathers him in after he's told him, don't come see me again. All of a sudden, Pharaoh is begging him to come. And when he gets there, he is pleading with Moses and demanding that he get out. Moses has been saying over and over and over, let my people go that they may worship God that they may take their flocks and herds and sacrifice to God and you are not going to hold us in slavery anymore Pharaoh and Pharaoh says all along the way for 12 chapters up to this point he says bet me I will not let your people go and if I let them go I'm not going to let them take their flocks and herds and I'm not going to let them take the women and children because after all they don't count and we're going to hold them hostage and Pharaoh says no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. No matter what you do to me, I'm not going to do it. And finally, right here in this section, he says, he gives, starts giving Moses different commands. He says, up. It's not even a, it's just a verb. Just get, get up, all of you. Get out of here. Go, serve the Lord. Take your flocks and herds and be gone. I don't want to see hide or hair of any of you be gone. And it is, if it weren't so tragic, it's almost comical. This is unconditional surrender. It's complete humiliation for Pharaoh. It's like at the end of World War II, they had, they had the battleship Missouri, and when the empire of Japan surrendered, Right there on the deck of the the Missouri, the Empire of Japan signs an unconditional surrender. And finally, that's what Pharaoh offers, is his unconditional surrender to the will of God. What he has been told to do for 12 long chapters. And he who would not let Israel go to serve the Lord is now commanding that they go and serve the Lord. And notice one more thing, the end of verse 32. The last demand that Pharaoh makes of Moses is interesting. He says, and also, bless me. This is a really curious request. Because he has not acknowledged the living God all along the way. And he has not wanted to do anything that the Lord said to do, and he has been resistant of everything the Lord, in fact, did command, and now he says, bless me. When he has no other option but to obey God, now he wants credit from God for doing it. Again, if it weren't so tragic, it would be comical. But he's kind of like in that a lot of people who, when they have no other option but to do God's will, want God to bless them as a result. They said, well, you know, God, I really haven't wanted anything to do with you all of my life up to now. However, now that I'm doing your will, it would be nice if you'd pour down the blessing. And I can just tell you that it's not because Pharaoh's heart is really repentant toward God. Because as soon as the shock and awe of the tenth plague wears off, what is Pharaoh doing? He gets his army together and he pursues the Israelites to re-enslave them and bring them death once more. And so this is not the request of a repentant man. This is the request of a man who still thinks that he can somehow triumph over the living God by his own might and his own power and his own will, that somehow he's going to stand up to God except when he can't anymore. But God's blessing does come and will come to his people. And we'll see that uh, in uh, verse 33 down to 36. Look at those with me. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, and their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, this little section reads like an eyewitness account from somebody who saw it happen, and it is the Israelites were in a hurry to leave because they were not just being asked to leave, now they're being actually shoot out the door. Please go. Please go. Go now. And the Egyptian people are now in fear of the nation of Israel and of keeping them in their land one second past what's necessary. So all Israel grabs their stuff and heads out the door and there are no restaurants on the way. This is the original fast food right here. They've got to get a snack, and they've got to get it now, so they grab whatever dough they've got that's made for the next day's bread, but before it even rises, they're headed out the door because God's deliverance comes quickly when it comes. And and it's like the bursting of a dam. If you've ever seen that happen or read about it happen, it starts with a small crack, and that's what happens with the initial plague. And then as the plagues continue, the cracks get wider and wider, and wider, and finally, when the exodus happens, it's like flood washing down through an unprotected valley, just all of the people of Israel are going out, and they are not going empty-handed, they are going out with the Versace, and the Cartier, and the silver, and everything else they can carry, because God has given them recompense for 430 years of slavery. And he has given it from the hands of their oppressors. And God has set them up with, uh, with everything they will need for a new life, with everything they will need for worshiping him. In fact, the silver and gold jewelry that they carry out, a portion of it is going to go into the construction of the tabernacle. And it says, the scripture says, that they plundered the Egyptians. Now the word plunder is maybe not a word we use much anymore, but it means this. It's the spoils of victory in a war. And so when when the Israelites are going out, they are described not as having been graciously given gifts, they're described as having conquered through God's power the Egyptian empire and being given the spoils of God's victory over the empire of Egypt. And they go out, and they go out wealthy. This is not a reparations payment, exactly. This isn't like, hey, you know, what's a few hundred years of slavery between friends? Here's some stuff. Uh, (laughs) this This is God saying, you will give my people whatever they ask for. And they do. And the people of Israel come out rich. And it says here, we actually get details on the Exodus, the initial phase of it, verse 37 to 42. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor they had prepared nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves the time the people of israel lived in egypt was 430 years and at the end of 430 years on that very day all the hosts of the lord went out from the land of egypt it was a night of watching by the lord to bring them out of the land of egypt so this same night is a night of watching kept to the lord by all the people of israel throughout their generations. Now, do you think that the God of creation is also the Lord of history? Yes, He is. On the anniversary of their 430th year in Egypt, on that very night, they got out of Egypt. Do you think that, that the God who brought the plagues was able to orchestrate them in just exactly such a way that on the very night, was their anniversary of slavery, that they would come out. Yes, indeed. Then that is exactly what happened. And all the Israelites went out with God having triumphed both over the empire of Egypt as well as all of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Remember, all the plagues were a rebuke to various gods of Egypt. And so you had the plague of darkness, which was a rebuke to Ra, the sun god, who they believed brought the sunshine every day. And so for three days they lived in total darkness. So that they would see that Ra is not God, but Yahweh is God. You know, you had, you had the confrontation with the snakes. You had the confrontation over the Nile River with the frogs and the boils and the livestock and the hail and the locusts and all these things. And they were all individually crafted as a rebuke to the gods of Egypt. And all of this happens, and so a mixed multitude, the Scripture says, went out with the Israelites in the Exodus. Now, who were those people? Well, they weren't Jews. They were other people who were living in Egypt and saw the plagues and understood what God was telling them, that I am the Lord and there is no other. And all of these things that you worship as gods and goddesses and all these things that you bow down to and serve with your life are not gods at all, but I am God. And they believed in the God of the exodus and the God of the plagues and the God who can control history. And they said, that is a God worth worshiping. And when his people go out, I am going with them. And they went. And they got out of Dodge. And they headed out, and God kept vigil over them to make sure that His redemption proceeded exactly according to His plan and decree. And so, to this very day, 3,500 years later, all those who are Jews keep watch on Passover night, just as the Lord kept watch over them. Now, there are also some questions that people raise as they read this account, and they see this number in particular. 600,000 men went out. Now, uh, a lot of people go, well, where's the evidence of that happening? Well, first of all, the Egyptians, like most ancient people, did not keep records of all of their dramatic defeats. When they won a battle, they inscribed that on every pillar and monument. When they lost that got swept under the rug and not mentioned anymore. It didn't make their histories. But in addition to that, this is a massive nomadic migration, and it's been 3,500 years since. And so you've got 3,500 years of desert sand covering up most of the traces that there would be. But in addition to that, uh, there is a, an interpretive issue with the word translated thousand that is there. It's the Hebrew word elep. You don't need to know that. It won't be on the test. But, but, um, but oh, there's a test at the end. All right. Uh, anyway, you flunked. All right. <laughs> anyway, uh, but you, you don't know, we don't know if that should be translated thousand, as it is in some contexts in the Old Testament, or if that should be translated military commander, or if that should be translated clan. And all three of those are legitimate translations. And so it may be, if, and, and by the way, 600,000 is a defensible interpretation there. And some scholars take that. And that would render a, a size of the Exodus of about 2 million people. Uh, if, on the other hand, it's 600 clans or 600 military commanders and their units, that's a significantly smaller number. Then it's tens of thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So uh, I'm not exactly sure where where that comes down or how the, how to how to best understand that. What we are to understand is it's a massive group of folks, and and it is due to God's deliverance that they come out. And. And we want to understand that God is the Lord of history and these things literally happen. If we don't know precisely how to understand how big the number is, it's a big number. And God is the Lord of history and these things really happen, just as the cross really happened, as an example. If you were there 2014 years ago, well, actually, it's not quite that many. But about 2,000 years ago, you could have stood before the cross at Calvary, and you could have touched the blood running down the cross. It really happened. And the Exodus is that level of real. It really happened. And if you had been there on Passover night 3,500 years ago, you would have seen all this mass of people heading out of Egypt. And they would have journeyed from Ramses, which we're not sure where that was exactly. We think it's the modern-day city of Comteir. To another city called Sukkoth, which we think is identified with a, what's now just a mound where a city used to be, that's about 15 miles east of the Nile Delta. And that was their route as they headed out. But God is the Lord of history, and these events really happened, and it's not just a story in a book. And the reason that these events happen is that God might reveal Himself as the God who redeems His people from slavery and death. The firstborn died, and the blood of the Lamb was shed so that God might deliver His people from slavery and death. And that is the central truth at the heart of Exodus as a book and as this story, This the center point of all of this. And if you don't understand this understand understand much of anything else about the bible understand this and what this has to do with easter that god still saves his people in precisely the same way today as he did back then he saves them not through some mystical means not through some magic formula but through the blood of the of the lamb and the death of the firstborn Only different than the firstborn who died in Egypt, God sent his firstborn. Remember what John three sixteen says? For God so loved the world that he sent his what? One and only son. Okay? Uh, First uh, Colossians and the book of Revelation both refer to Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, the idea is is that Jesus is the first part of a much greater share of people. And because God's firstborn was put to death on the cross, and because He was the perfect Lamb of God whose blood was spilled to cover the sins of the entire world, then you and I can be redeemed just as the people of Israel were from slavery to Pharaoh. You and I can be redeemed from slavery and death to a greater Pharaoh our sin and the death that comes as a result and the eternal separation from God that is called the second death in the Bible, eternity in hell. And looking back from today, from the perspective of Good Friday and Easter, what we find is the deeper reality of which Exodus is a shadow and a type. It's a picture like you would draw for a little kid to say, well, see, you experienced this experience because God says he dealt with Israel like a child and he gave them pictures and experiences so that they would understand the deeper spiritual reality in a way that maybe they couldn't get their arms around otherwise and he deals with us as adults and he says look back at this and see the picture that I drew for you I put blood on the door at the top and at the sides and as that blood ran down it made a cross in the doorway, so that you would understand that when Messiah was crucified, that he is the one to whom the Passover sacrifice points. And I took you out of slavery in Egypt so that you would understand that when the the lamb was slain, when the firstborn died, that that was a picture pointing toward Jesus, who was the firstborn, Son of God, who is the, the supreme Moses, who brought Not just the people of Israel, but the entire world out of slavery and death if they would put their trust in the blood of the Lamb. In Exodus, you had a choice, a very simple choice. You could either cover your sin with the blood of the Lamb, or you could sacrifice your firstborn son. The Egyptians largely chose the latter option. Israel chose to have their sin covered with the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus Christ, God has offered a different choice. He says this, I will sacrifice my son. I'll sacrifice the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ, my firstborn. And if you'll put your trust in his death, in the shedding of his blood for your sins, I will, as the... As offering him as the perfect Passover lamb, I will pass over your sins and not bring judgment and death to you. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you receive from God the same thing Israel did. Release from bondage and slavery. Because here's the thing, every kind of sin that a person participates in, is for them a kind of slavery that leads to death. Peter says, by whatever overcomes a man, by, to that he is enslaved. Whatever sin we get into always leads to slavery to it and to death. And Jesus died on Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, to set every man and woman and child free in a much better, much greater exodus And he rose again to show that he was victorious over the Pharaoh death. Whom he completely humiliated. Because death did not have a right to hold him in the grave. And so three days after his crucifixion, he arose to give new life and a better relationship with God. And to take us into a new and better promised land. And God will dwell among us. He promises if we put our trust in the Lamb of God, the firstborn who was slain on our behalf, he will take us into a new and better relationship with God that leads to a new promised land with God dwelling among us in a better way than he did among the people of Israel. So let me close with two questions. First of all, have you received the death of Jesus Christ, the firstborn, on your behalf have you received the death of jesus christ the firstborn on your behalf has he become for you the lamb of god who takes away your sin have you trusted in his blood to cover your sin and to enable god to pass over you with his death angel? And instead to release you from slavery and death. Second question. If your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb and the death of Jesus Christ, the firstborn. If that is true of you, and it's a binary choice. Either Jesus has died for you because you have put your trust in him. Or he has not and you remain outside the people of God. But if you have, then you have been set free from slavery to sin. Sin no longer has any mastery over you, Paul says. You have been released, even if you were previously enslaved to it for a long time. Even if it feels like 430 years of hard labor serving your sin, you have been set free by the grace of God through the blood of the Lamb. Because the resurrection is not simply about Jesus. Amen? The resurrection is about Jesus Christ being raised to give you and me new life. And we are to walk in newness of life. And we're to turn away from the life we used to live when we were enslaved in Egypt. And to not walk around in those things anymore. So let me ask you, if the blood of the Lamb has covered your sin, are you walking in freedom today? Have you been set free from your sin to serve the living God? Because Jesus declares, I have set you free. But many people who have nevertheless believed in Christ still continue to labor for their sin. Is there anything today in your life if you are a believer in Christ, which you still continue to labor in slavery to. If there is, today is the day. To turn aside from it and to walk in freedom because you have been set free indeed. I'm going to pray and we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your magnificent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, though it grieves us that Jesus had to be sacrificed because our sins were so heinous, Father, we nevertheless celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed, that we might have new life, that we might have holiness and happiness and joy and live in your presence just as you have promised. Father, the end of the book says, now the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will be their God, and they will be his people. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or sorrow anymore, no more death, for the old order of things has passed away. And Father, we anticipate that day knowing that Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead to give us new life. And we celebrate that fact here as we take communion in Jesus' name. Amen.